Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's obviously the story that is dominating the news cycles and has for the last uh, 24 or so hours is uh, the move by the Ontario government uh, from uh, Premier Doug Ford to invoke the notwithstanding clause when it comes to Bill 5. Now that, of course, I think we all know now, was the bill that was supposed to reduce the size of Toronto City Council. Uh, the City of Toronto uh, asked for a judicial review on that, and uh, the rendering came down, the, re- the judgment rather, came down yesterday. And uh, it, it's an option that's open to them. Uh, some are comparing this to uh, to using a nuclear bomb to try to l- deal with a minor issue. It's uh, it's certainly caused shockwaves uh, in in political circles and obviously in in legal circles as well. So we're going to talk about this and, and approach it from a couple of different angles, and we are going to give you an opportunity uh, to weigh in on uh, what Ford is doing and the implications of that a little bit later on in the hour. Right now, though, we're pleased to welcome to the program John Maskerin, who is a partner at Air. Burles, uh, leader in municipal planning and local government law, uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. John, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Bill. Let's uh, talk about a little bit about what's happened in the last 24 hours, if we could, John. And all the years you've been uh, studying and, and dealing with uh, with local government planning, uh, I never heard, nor did I ever probably think we'd ever see a municipal government try to invoke the notwithstanding clause. Were you surprised by that? Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm still. I'm still reeling from it, Bill. I'll, I'll be honest. I. Uh, I heard you just refer to um, uh, a number of people who have called it a nuclear uh, uh, response. To uh, I keep saying it's. It appears to me the invocation of Section 33 of the Charter, the Notwithstanding Clause, to be disproportionate to what's actually happening uh, here in in Toronto. What Bill Fye was purporting to do. Uh, not sure I'd go quite nuclear on it, but. Uh, it to me, it seems a little disproportionate. So, yeah, to answer your question, I, I am still very, very surprised by it. Well, some of the uh, the legal feedback we've heard on this has just been astonishing. I know that Tom Axworthy, who was actually in uh, the, the, the federal government at the time when this whole thing was chartered, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was uh, being crafted and the notwithstanding clause was put in there. And, and he's already been on uh, the record of suggesting nobody ever thought this was going to happen. They thought this was really in there to try to appease Quebec. Uh, when it came to deals of uh, things of separation, they never thought municipal governments were going to try to do something with this. Yeah, it uh, well, w- when you're putting uh, clauses like this in, they're usually put in to address a specific situation, and the legislators would probably be told by their legal counsel, uh, well, you know, be careful because it might be used for this or that. But I bet you they didn't, uh, you know, envisage this particular scenario. So uh, I, I agree with you on that. It, it's interesting how this has really changed the the, the paradigm, hasn't it, John? I mean, the, uh, 24 hours ago, the debate was, well, you know, should they reduce the size of Toronto City Council? And, and there are sides, I guess there are pretty strong points of view on both sides of that. But with this announcement about invoking the notwithstanding clause, it's now changed this uh, discussion to a legal issue. It's not about the Toronto City Council at all. It's about what the provincial government here in Ontario wants to do. Yeah, it's become uh, a much more uh, uh, high-level now discussion. And, and you know, the, the, there was a lot uh, before when when the, the city council thing was being, you know, slashed. Uh, there were a lot of people elsewhere going, well, why should I really care? Toronto Council is too big. The, the mega city is too big. Uh, so it, it, there was a lot of that. And I kept saying to people, you know, I think this is going to have national implications because the constitutional framework is set up throughout all of Canada for all the jurisdictions for each province and territory in the same way as Ontario. So I said, you know, I think a lot of other provinces are going to look at this, uh, and other cities in other places in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and say, well, if Ontario's legislature can do this to their municipalities, what what might happen here? And now this has taken on a whole other realm, which is, uh, you know the the invocation of the notwithstanding clause, which has been very rarely used uh, up to date. So it just brings it to a completely different realm. Well, in in your mind, is this open a Pandora's box from the legal standpoint? Yeah, it, it may very well. Um, so you know, if if you think about it, uh, I think. Uh, Doug Ford, uh, when in his press conference, I think he was very clear. We're going to invoke it. And he, you know, he was guns ablazing. He's, you know, he wasn't mincing words. We're going to appeal, and we're going to do this. And he says, and we won't hesitate to use it again. I think that also caught a lot of people off guard. It's like I didn't think that's how you're supposed to actually do it. Don't you know? Uh, it, you, you might want to use it, but 
he's sort of saying, ah, I'm going to continue to do this. So then you wonder, hmm, what does this mean for, you know, the larger democratic debate that's going on and the whole question of, you know, what is the charter supposed to protect and how is it supposed to protect and is it really the supreme law if, you know, it's going to be invoked over and over again by governments who don't like its application. Well, there's, I guess, a more elementary question that a lot of folks are asking these days, and I've already had some feedback about my commentary that's on our, our website now, 900chml.com, John. But what I was saying was, uh, the analogy, I said, look at, uh, you know, Mr. Ford has seemed to be saying yesterday, look at, I'm the premier, I won the election, I can do whatever I want. Uh, and, and frankly, from a legal standpoint, that's not true. I mean, you know, any government can rescind laws or make laws of score, but they've got to do it within the parameters of the laws of the land, don't they? Is, isn't that a, a fact? That is a fact, and that is the, the point. I think that's why there's, there's, there's a lot of upset people about this, because, uh, the, you know, truth to power, right? Speaking truth to power, you, you have to uh, uh, be certain that the government is not doing something inappropriate. And in Canada, we, we're a constitutional democracy, and the charter is the supreme law of the land. Uh, notwithstanding the notwithstanding clause, it is. And so governments have to act like other people. You can't go and kill someone and, and say, oh, well, you know, it's okay, I'm invoking this today. Um, you're, you, you've still killed someone, there should be ramifications. Now, I'm not equating killing to, to, to what's happening here, but uh, it, it was just a stretched analogy, I suppose. But uh, the, the charter is the supreme law, and uh, that's... You know, to to invoke it for something like this, as I said earlier, um, I'm not maybe not nuclear uh, remedy, but it certainly looks disproportionate to what was being sought to be put in place. But I, I can tell you what I'm concerned about looking forward here is is as you mentioned that Ford's suggesting he might do this again. Uh, I, I said this is akin to like if you're a hockey fan, uh, nobody likes referees, but you have to have them. I mean, there are rules, and somebody has to make sure that everybody that's playing the game uh, plays by the rules. And if they don't, they call penalties. And you hate it when they do it against your team. But if you don't have that, you have chaos. And and uh, f- what Ford has done is just basically thumbed his nose and said, I don't care what the laws are. This is what I want to do. Well. The, the, the judiciary's role here is to be the referee, and uh, they're supposed to be respected for that. Somebody thought that Ford was out of bounds and, and, and broke the rules by going ahead with what he was doing here. The judge said, yes, he did. Now he's simply saying, I don't care. That's clearly what it came across uh, like. Uh, uh, he's, I think he said at one point, uh, someone going to put tape over my mouth and allow, allow me to speak? Well, yeah, and I think, I think he would even point to all kinds of things that should be censored uh, in, a, in a free and democratic society. Hate speech, for instance. Uh, you're, you're not going to say, oh, well, you know, that should be allowed because we're, you know, you, you can't censor us. So th- there have to be limits. I totally agree with you on that. And I think that's what was the, the scary thing about what happened. Not, not even so much the initial, we're going to use Section 33, but it's, we're not going to hesitate to use it again. And and that begs the question, well, what else do they want to do? I mean, are they going to, in other words, flaunt the laws again? With, and with who knows what? And I know that you can really get into a ridiculous conversation here about any legislation that they might pass. But but And, and I know that a lot of people are going to say, well, that's ridiculous. They never think, for instance, to pass a law that says only progressive conservatives can vote in Ontario now. They'd never do that. But the fact is, is what Ford said yesterday says if we want to, we will, and nobody's going to stop us. That's that's right, and I think Justice Bellababa, when he was uh, hearing the argument, I think he brought up a couple of analogies that were very close to what you just said. He said, so you're telling me that the provincial government could just pass a law and that only uh, senior white men could be in the uh, provincial legislature? He said, would that be, would that be fair? Uh, so, he, you know, you, you can see the ultimate ends that you, you could have some very ridiculous scenarios, but taken to its logical conclusion, I don't disagree agree with you, Bill. And I love your analogy to hockey and referees because Justice Bellabob himself called himself a judicial umpire. Uh, mm-hmm. in it. Maybe, he, maybe he had been watching the, the U.S. Open tennis match, you know, on the weekend. <laughs> well, we know how that ended. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but it, it really one, it gives you a great bit of pause and concern, I guess, John, about the ramifications on what's going to happen here uh, and, and what else is going to come down the road. Uh, and, and I grant you, the justice's language uh, in his decision was, was a little, uh, you know, off. I mean, 
mean, you know, the, the term crickets, I think, probably rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. But you have to get to the intent of what he was saying. And, and to go back to the initial debate here about, you know, whether or not the, the government could do what they did about reducing the Toronto City Council, I don't think the justice or anybody else has said, look at the province can't do that. Uh, you in Toronto, we in Hamilton are living proof that provincial governments can change municipal governments. They, they did it with the amalgamation years ago. They did it with the, with the, the stuff that's been going on for the last couple of years. Uh, regional governments back in the 70s, for heaven's sakes. So they can, but I think I think what the justice was saying is, but not during the middle of an election campaign. And that seems to be the point that uh, Mr. Ford seems to have glossed over. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. It's uh, uh, he, The decision is very clear. He even said, uh, you know, if you'd done it six months before, then there would have been an opportunity for people to respond to it or not run or, or do something different and get their messaging across. To do it right now is just the wrong thing. And he actually even said, you can go and reenact a version of Bill 5 after the election. And it, it may be uh, just fine constitutionally. It was the timing that uh, that was completely wrong, and I, I agree with you. It looks like that uh, that that one uh, one small thing may have been just uh, not within uh, Doug Ford's wheelhouse to to comprehend. I, I know we're going to get into constitutional debates about this now because of what's happening, but I mean the the, the government has said that they're going to move forward to this. He's going to reintroduce Bill Five. And then invoke the notwithstanding clause. Now, my understanding, John, if I'm reading some of the decisions I've seen and some of the opinions over the last 24 hours, is there's not a darn thing the city of Toronto can do about this. Yeah, that that was my sense too, uh, Bill. I, uh, I I was listening to some other people who have a much greater knowledge of constitutional law than me, but I was asked several times, can the city challenge that itself, the fact that they're seeking to invoke it? And I said, boy, that's... That's kind of tough. How, how can you do it unless, you know, they passed it without a majority at the, you know, the legislature, some other thing? I said, I think they can do it. I'm not really sure on what basis you can challenge an exception to the charter on. Are you going to uh, uh, focus on some sort of charter challenge to the exception? It'd be uh, sort of extraordinary, but I'm not sure that they can. I, um, and I think John Tory actually has come out and actually said that. Even though he, I think he has a special council meeting on uh, if, if tomorrow or Thursday, uh, where I, I guess they're going to be getting advice from their legal counsel as to whether that's in fact the case or not. You got to wonder, as you mentioned off the top here, how many other governments right now around the country are looking at this and saying, "Hey, I, I, I want a piece of that. I can do that too, can't I?" Uh, and and I, I can just see the courts are going to be inundated right now, or could possibly be inundated right now with very similar situations about laws in other parts of the country. Uh, probably, uh, I think there. Uh, I think there's a lot of quaking in their boots going on. W- one thing that I'll just mention to you, Bill, that was really interesting. Uh, so, uh, Bill Five was introduced. It was going. It was passed, and uh, uh, Premier Ford was speaking at the Association of Municipalities in, of Ontario in Ottawa, and was asked the question: um, uh, You know, would. Uh, w- is this going to happen in other places? Is there going to be a slashing of council uh, uh, in, in other places? And interestingly enough, his speech notes say, uh, we are not planning uh, any uh, cuts to any other uh, councils in Ontario. But what he actually said is, we're not planning any cuts to any councils in Ontario for now. He added two words to it. Which makes us wonder here in Hamilton, uh, and I'm sure they're having the same discussion in Ottawa, in Windsor, and in a number of other places right now. Is this what's going to come down the road for us? It may very well. If it works for Toronto, right, then that's what they're saying. It's dysfunctional. It's too large. I mean, Niagara Region Council has 31 members, right? That's pretty large. Uh, uh, Peel, I think, has close to 30, 29, something like that. So you, you, you can see the argument for smaller places and being more efficient being made in a whole host of municipalities, including Hamilton, Ottawa, and some other larger cities. Some of the things that he talked about in the decision, John, I wanted to get your opinion on. First of all, yeah. he, he, he was upset about the fact that, uh, that there was no public consultation on that. And, and those of us that went through amalgamation uh, 17, 18 years ago uh, know that there was public consultation. I, you know, not everybody was happy with the, the outcome, of course, not in Toronto nor in Hamilton for that matter, but they did go through those steps. Uh, and he also mentioned the fact, obviously, about this being the, during the election campaign. Yep. Uh, if, if, if all your years of, in municipal government and, and law, are there 
protocols that must be adhered to, or are those just suggestions that they might want to try to do if they feel like it? Well, in here, what's really interesting in the City of Toronto Act, um, and it's also in the Municipal Act, but I'll just talk about the City of Toronto Act for the moment. When it was created, it was supposed to recognize the City of Toronto as, uh, you know, the sort of center of the universe. And uh, it didn't actually give the City of Toronto all that uh, greater powers than any other municipality had. But what it did is it put in place, and again, it is in the Municipal Act for every other municipality, that the province shall consult uh, and cooperate and have mutual respect for its municipalities. And I think that's what struck people as very odd, uh, saying, you know, it was even in the legislation itself that it would do this, and yet the government came in and didn't do it. Now, Justice Bellababa in his decision says there is no duty. The province can at any time come in and do something different. Uh, I, I found that quite surprising, and he said, you know, a subsequent statute can override a previous statute. So then I'm wondering, well, what's the point of having the consultation requirement in both the City of Toronto Act and the Municipal Act if the province can at any time decide, eh, we're just not going to follow it? it? It just seems like odd legislative drafting to, to do that. Um, but, but that's what he, he said on that point. So um, usually, uh, Bill, when a statute requires a prior meeting, uh, public meetings or consultations, it's usually spelled out very clearly, and I'll just give you one example. The city of yeah, Hamilton. I got about thirty seconds pass. left. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just very simply, city of Hamilton wants to pass a zoning bylaw. It has to have a public meeting where it gets public input before it can do so. The, and it, if they pass the bylaw without it, it's an invalid bylaw. Curious times, John. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, it, it's got a lot of us scrambling right now, trying to find out exactly what's happening. Thanks so much for the time today. We'll uh, probably stay in touch as this unfolds over the next few days. Appreciate it, though. Please do, and thank you very much, Bill. Okay, John Maskerman, partner at Aired Beerless, uh, trying to make some sense out of what happened at Queen's Park. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of reaction on uh, Facebook and on uh, Twitter uh, with our commentary, uh, our commentary from 810 this morning, that uh, no government should be above the law, uh, with, of course, all having to do with Doug Ford's announcements yesterday about invoking the, the notwithstanding clause. Uh, and basically thumbing his nose at uh, the ju- judge's ruling from yesterday. Uh, somewhat of a, a paradox, really, for uh, Mr. Ford to say that, yes, he does respect uh, judicial decisions, but uh, he's going to ignore this one. Uh, you're either in or you're out in situations like that. But uh, he seemed pretty adamant yesterday. That I'm sitting here handcuffed with a piece of tape over my mouth watching what I say? That is actually scary. Democracy is going every four years to elect a government, no matter if it's federally or provincially or municipally, Without worrying about your mandate being overturned, what is there, 10 lawsuits now? It's unheard of. And look where the 10 lawsuits are coming from. Special interest groups. Uh, special interest groups, his phrase, of course, not ours. Uh, but it just it, it goes, I guess, to the mindset of what's going on with this government right now. Uh, and I understand that you have to have mandates. I get that. Every government does. That's why we vote for them. That's why we elect them. But at the same time, the point that I was making, and I think that our guest John Maskerin was making, is yes, you can do that, Mr. Ford, but you have to do it within the framework of the laws of the land. And the judge's ruling yesterday says that Bill 5, that this government moved through, violates the Charter of Rights. And that makes it unconstitutional. It's against the Constitution, then. You get it? Outside the law. That was the ruling. Didn't say you can't govern. Just said you can't do this this way. And other governments have had rulings that come against them in the past. The Harper government had a handful of them with some other get-tough-on-crime on stuff that was deemed to be unconstitutional, and they had to abandon. It happened to liberal governments. It's happened to every government. Uh, the, there will be people that will use the laws of the land. Uh, and, and that's what we're supposed to do. If, you, if we have laws and we simply say, to hell with them, we're not even going to pay attention to them, then you have chaos. I mean, Mr. Ford can talk all he wants about democracy, but part of that democracy is is living within the rules. And he doesn't seem to want to do that in this case. Uh, a lot of folks are upset about what happened yesterday and the implications of, uh, including uh, a number of uh, union folks. I guess they're special interests, according to the Premier. OPSU is now calling out the Ford government for the use of this clause and urging backbenchers to join opposition to actually defeat this legislation. Warren Smokey Thomas, the president of OPSU, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Smokey, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, no, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, give me your read on what you saw yesterday. 
Well, it's, I don't really think Mr. Ford understands what democracy really is. Yeah, he got 40% of the popular vote, but 60% of people didn't vote for him. And I've had this argument with, you know, uh, previous premiers like McGinty and Wynn that, you know, you got elected to, once you're elected, you're supposed to represent everybody, not, not just your base. Like, so you're supposed to be a little bit tempered in your view of the world and, and try and consult. So I don't really think Mr. Ford understands what democracy is. And I want to, you know, I, I've met a lot of politicians in my time and I met a lot of Tory MPPs when they were in opposition. And there are thoughtful people that got into politics for the correct reasons, for all the right reasons. You know, like John Yakabuski, uh, you know, uh, Bob Bailey, uh, Christine Elliott, all the, you know, like Jeff Urick, all these folks got into it for the right reasons. So I, and I would just say to them, uh, you know, that this, this is not the Tory party. I don't think Mr. Ford's a Tory. He's, he's something, but he's not definitely not the kind of Tory that I've dealt with for, and I've been doing this for, you know, 25, 30 years. And so I'm really hoping that if it's a free vote, whatever that means in his mind, that they will vote this down, that they will maybe give their own boss a bit of a tune-up. He needs a comeuppance in my mind. And say to him, look, at, you know, uh, you, 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 you're not a dictator here. You don't have absolute power. You need to temper this. And because um, if he, you know, I don't think he cares about getting reelected in four years. All them special interest groups he refers to, well, he's got his own pocket of, uh, you know, cronies and friends and people he wants to fix up. So that's why I'm calling on the uh, uh, the backbenchers in particular and the cabinet ministers to, you know, uh, stand up and say enough's enough. We do respect the law. And I, one thing I've always prided myself about Tories, you know, well, not prided, but I mean, admired about Tories is that they did respect the law. They do respect the law, but this man doesn't. So I'm hoping they uh, join with the opposition parties and, and voted voted down and and say, look, you need to start talking to him. I, like, he, he doesn't, uh, uh, I'll be honest with you, cabinet ministers, the, in my view, have absolutely no authority. I mean, he won't make their letters public. He's, you know, for a guy that's ran on transparency and openness, he's very secretive. I mean, I find cabinet ministers have no authority at all. And most of the politicians on, in his own party are learning about his decisions from the media, just like we do. And so he's not, there's no way to run a government. He's, a, he's just running a, a one-man show here. And, you know, with a few people in his office, it's just not the way to do things. I uh, saw a tweet earlier this morning, Smokey, I don't know if you did, uh, Randy Rath, who's a good friend of mine who works over at CHCH-TV. He's been at Queen's Park for years, of course, covering uh, provincial government. Uh, and he tweeted this morning that he has uh, approached a number of uh, government MPPs and, and cabinet ministers, frankly, over the the last couple of weeks, not just about this issue, but about others. And he's been told off the record, "Look, I'd like to talk to you, but I'm not allowed to." Uh, and and that and, and, you know, and this is this is a government that said this is going to be an open and transparent government. And I, I I don't like the road they're going down right now. No, I don't, and I get the same thing. And uh, and I've had cabinet ministers cancel me at short notice. Uh, uh, Vic Fidelli canceled me on short notice. Said he was busy. Uh, mind you, I canceled the Minister of Government Services tomorrow because I'm afraid to uh, uh, to do anything with them right at the moment. They were trying to jam like a whole day's worth of stuff into about three hours. I don't want to get co-opted. And I don't know the man at all. I, I think he's well-intentioned. I think he is. But if they have no authority, to be honest with you, well, why would I waste my time, right? Like, it's just they, they don't seem to be able if they, they can't make a decision. I mean, Mr. Ford has done things that, well, so did Win, but this guy... You know, I actually had somebody say to me, a win hater, geez, geez, I don't know, maybe we would have been better off with the liberals. What a statement. What a, what a condemnation of Mr. Ford's government to date. Geez, I don't know, we would have been better off with the liberals. You know, I voted Tory, but I sure regret it now. So he's, uh, he does need to be reined in. It's not, it's, this is not his province to do as he pleases with. This is, he's a premier that, uh, I'm, I mean, if he understands democracy at all, he, he should be listening to his backbenchers and his cabinet ministers. And i got to tell you, I, I look at a guy like Steve Clark from Brockville standing next to him in picture. Steve looks like he's in agony. Do you, you know what I mean? And I know Steve, but he's, he's one of the most principled people I've ever met in my life. And he's a municipal affairs minister. I can't imagine the, the turmoil that must be going on in his mind because he's a good person. So 
I hope that they, they teach them a lesson. I hope that some of them have the courage to say enough's enough. Uh, Mr. Ford, you, 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 you can't run things this way. It's not yours to do. Well, they, and, and listen, it's the, you know, and for people that, that read the, the ruling from the judge yesterday, and I understand that, you know, some suggesting, well, the language uh, in his decision was, was a little provocative. Notwithstanding that, if I can use that phrase, uh, the, the, the essence of his decision was, look at, nobody's saying that the, the provincial government can't uh, impose something on a, on a on a municipality. and Like we were talking in the last segment, Smokey, we saw that here in Hamilton. We went through amalgamation 18 years ago. So did Toronto. So did you know, Chatham-Kent. We know that. But there was a process. And we didn't do it in the middle of an election campaign. And I think what the Justice was saying is if you want to sh- you know, shorten the size of Toronto Council, knock yourself out, but don't do it in the middle of a campaign. You just, that's, that's timing more than anything else. I, my guess, Smokey, is that if they had waited till after the election and said, oh, or, you know what, this, for the next election, you're going down to 25, I, I, people might be upset, but there'd be no legal challenges to it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree completely. He does have a majority. He is going to, and, he's, and I mean, some of the, you know, deputy mayors said to me, no, we're going to have to do stuff you don't like. I said, well, oh, that's fine. I understand. He won the election. But there's a way, I agree with, you, with all that view completely. There's a way of doing things. As much as Harris, right, uh, you know, a lot of people oppose what he did. He was straight up about it. He ran on a platform, and he lived out that platform. There were no secret agendas, no nothing. He did what he said he was going to do, and he told you what he was going to do during the campaign. Mr. Ford is just like Kathleen Wynne was with the hydro and everything else. She never ran on it, but did it after. So he's behaving just like the past leader of two leaders of the Liberal Party did. And very people that he, you know, he uh, is trying to erase their memory. But a person like me, I'll remind him all the time. He's behaving. His behavior is even more egregious. Because you can't like there's a lot of. I mean, Kingston. You know, we're now two thirds rural landmass. I live in Kingston, right? And uh, and you know, so a lot of things Harris did. Some worked, some didn't. But but this stuff here, Mr. Ford, why would he pick this fight? I mean, what what is this the hill you want to die on? You want to get revenge on a city council? And by the way, you may you know, I, I'm in Toronto during the week all the time. His his record of showing up at council meetings was dismal. He had one of the worst records there was. And he's calling them dysfunctional. Maybe they're dysfunctional because he never showed up. Well, look so, at look at you, you know, know the history there, and and you know I'm not going to start to throw darts here, but the reality here is he says Toronto City Council while he was there was dysfunctional. Uh, but like anybody who watched what was going on there would say that well, look at the Ford brothers were part of the dysfunction. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, they might have been the the cause for an awful lot of the stuff that went on there. Uh, but he seems to want to blame any, everybody else for that. Uh, and which, by the way, is another thing that the judge talked about in his ruling is saying that there doesn't seem to be any justification for doing this. In other words, show me some data that says the yeah. Toronto Council is too big. Because if you look at this on a on a ratio basis uh, of population and the number of councillors, actually Toronto City Council is not too big for the size of the city of Toronto and for the population that's there. Uh, many other communities, including some down in Niagara Way, have much uh, better you know ratios, and, yeah. and they're the ones that should be considered for something like this. Why is he picking on Toronto? That, that's the question the judge was asking. That's where the reference to crickets came in. And, and again, that might have been a little flippant, but I think he was trying to make a point. No, and he, Well, uh, Steve Clark is from Brockville, He's the, I mean, uh, and he used to be the mayor of Brockville. He was youngest mayor in Canada's history. And, and so by this new formula, if you were to put it out across the province, Brockville would have oh, one mayor, no councillors. And, and so... Like when you, because you're right, when you talk about proportionality and how it all works and that there, there's no, that argument doesn't hold, uh, hold water, right? To say we, because uh, we got to cut it down for efficiencies. Now, how much is the taxpayers' money is he going to spend fighting over this? He said he was going to save $25 million over four years. I doubt that completely. I, I truly do doubt that, those numbers, because all you're going to do is make the other councillors even more busy, have more travel, more expenses, more stuff. So, you know what I mean? His calc- I don't know how we figured out the, how the savings. But, uh, I always find that to be a bit of voodoo. Uh, but, uh, Smokey, look, at I went through amalgamation here in Hamilton. I was on city council at the time. And, and the same argument was put forth by that government, saying we're going to reduce the number of politicians and you're going to save all kinds of money. And what happened in Hamilton, what happened in Toronto... What happened in other communities, including Sudbury and Ottawa, that went through the amalgamation, is, yeah, they reduced the number of councillors, but the staff numbers ballooned because they had to hire more people to do the jobs. Yeah. 
Yeah, no and and there was no saving. In fact, there, everybody was in the hole. That's that's the the big rub that everybody had. It was the imposition that that was placed on all of these communities. And right. and I, I I look at it, I'd like to think that uh, okay, reducing the size of council, he says it's going to save all this money, uh, but there was there was no science behind that. There was no factual evidence to set that. He just made that. He pulled a number out of the air and said, "This is how much you're going to save." We. And if I might give a caution to mayors, because I was around for the Harris years, right, and, and lived through amalgamation in Kingston, and, and if I was a mayor of any municipality, I'd be very afraid of forged plans, because the minister's letters are secret. And a lot of what they're going to do is really going to affect all of Ontario, municipalities in particular. And if it's downloading on the municipalities that, that are already cash-strapped, some of the smaller municipalities don't have the tax base to support Ontario Works or anything, right? And then that all got downloaded by the Harris government. They're in for a really rough ride. And uh, so uh, my caution to them would be, I, I wish the mayors would become and say, we want to see those minister letter too, letters too. Everybody, those ministerial directive letters should be public. They should be on the website. Even the liberals put them up. They should be on the website. They should be public knowledge. And then people can kind of prepare for what what's coming, and uh, and hold them accountable. Because right now, like what what you know, the guy he the law don't seem to matter to him. So, and the worst, scariest part is, well, if somebody does something I don't like in the future, a judge or whatever, I'm just going to invoke the same clause again. Well, that's that's not being a premier, that's being a dictator, right? That's way overstepping your bounds. So, uh, and he's going to lose some of those court challenges. Like he he will have rulings against him. So. We had one, for example, of the college uh, task force that settled that strike. He killed it. No, no notice to us. It just got a letter from a, a, an assistant deputy minister or somebody saying the premier decided to axe it. There was like two meetings left. They, you know, I was at the conference board of Canada yesterday talking about like a moderate, you know, what's the next round of jobs for people? How are we going to be prosperous? And, and that's part of what that task force was all about. How do the colleges fit in the training, making sure we have enough airline pilots, making sure we have enough welders, mill rights, making sure we have enough social workers, all those things that make society tick. And there was good, there was business at the table, students, families, everybody, unions, the government, and, and they just killed it. Two meetings to go, and they would have had their recommendations out. And when I asked why, well, I don't, you know, we don't really know why. Well, I know why, because it was a liberal invention. But he's going to lose that case because it was part of a collective agreement, and, and the law shows you can't override collective agreements. So when, ask Kathleen Wynne, Dalton McGinney about that, they lost. So is he going to invoke the Constitution to stop people from giving out a report that would be to the benefit of everybody in Ontario? So that's just that cheap uh, politics of revenge that I, I think is shameful. And I, I truly, not becoming any premier, I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's, uh, I had high hopes for the Tories, you know, uh, that I thought because most of the Tories I know were, like I say, are in the politics for the right reason, they're pragmatic thinkers, they're, you know, common sense. I don't know if I want to use that term in Tories anymore, but, but they're, you know, they were, they were decent people that wanted to do right by everybody. And, of course, now they've got a leader that doesn't appear to hold those values, I guess, is how I would put it. Well, look at everybody knew that, that we had to turn the page uh, during this provincial election. It was time to get, to get the, the sitting government out of there. Uh, and a lot of people opted, obviously, for the Conservatives as, as the fallback position. Some, you know, because they were big supporters. We get that. But that's history. But yeah. the reality here that that every politician needs to understand, whether you're the Premier of the province of Ontario or, or any other elected office, is that you still have to work within the rules of the land, the laws of the land. And, and the judge's ruling said that that bill does not fit in the, those laws. It's out of bounds. It's wrong. It's, it's, yeah. It violates the, the Charter of Rights. That makes it illegal, basically. Uh, and and if Mr. Ford is going to say, when he did say the other day, that look, I don't care. Anytime I want to push something through and it's against the law, I'm going to just invoke the notwithstanding clause. If you don't have rules, if you don't have laws, you have chaos, you have anarchy. I, and I, you know, and and anybody who thinks that I'm overstating that, that's the that's the definition. That's the definition oh. of anarchy. Is is just this, you know an abandonment of rules. And and really, I, I don't want to be governed that way by anybody. I don't care what political party they are. No, and you, and you can have civilized anarchy. You know what I mean? Like in the Harris years, there were the days of actions, protests, everything else. And I think they had some effects, so you could argue that all day long. But this is, like Ford has made it very clear, he doesn't care what anybody thinks. And that's the scary part. When you have somebody in power that says, I don't care what anybody thinks, because you're right, Bill, if he, what he said. 
that is truly, I think, should be worrisome to everybody in Ontario. Everybody, like Tory, Liberal, NDPers, people who don't like politicians at all, never vote. But that should be worrisome to everybody because we now have an individual that is talking about. He's, you know, he's made several statements very worrisome to me. I'll leave no stone unturned looking for privatization opportunities. Well, we've shown in many cases where the taxpayers get taken advantage of less. You know, the, we always call it the pay more, get less plan. And I can't, and this guy, I mean, he, he ripped, you know, he's the boss directly of 35,000 of my members and the indirect boss of the rest of the, you know, the other 120, 20,000. So, and he won't meet with me. So, uh, you know, I've got some things to ask him and say to him. And, and, and I, I know I tend to take things issue by issue, but he makes that very difficult, right? Because I don't know that you could have a reasonable conversation with him. And, and like even Harris. We put a business case to him once. One of my uh, executive board members did. He's who now works on staff, but and he got another 150 probation officers out of the Tories because he made the business case. Said, "Look, if this makes sense, you want to supervise people, you know." So we like putting real, you know, like evidence in front of them, but they don't appear to. You know, the evidence shows here that well, he overstepped his bounds. And, but uh, it'll be an interesting day in the house uh, tomorrow, and I don't know if you can jam it all through in one day. I don't know how many days they'll have to sit, but uh, it'll be an interesting uh, be a fly on the wall watching that one. So for the people of Ontario, you just tune into that provincial legislative channel. You can watch uh, the Gong Show on TV if you like. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how this goes through. And I, I look at I, I understand that obviously what you and, and and others would like to see is is for the the MPPs, the backbenchers, to stand up and say, "Wait a second, we got to stop here." I, I'm not so sure that's that's likely to happen. But we'll watch you. And I, I got to break it off at this yeah. point, Smokey. Thanks so much okay. for the time today. Okay. Oh, Bill, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right, Smokey Thomas, president of Opsu, uh, and again, the 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 release they put out there simply said they want to call on. Uh, some of the sitting members of, of the government side to actually be part of this and just say, hold on. Uh, when governments win majority governments, especially backbenchers, are basically told to just be quiet and, you know, stand up and vote when I tell you to vote, uh, the chances of insurrection within the ranks are pretty slim uh, for any political party. So I, I don't know that that's going to happen, but we will be following this over the next couple of days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We all know about the tariff war that has gone on between Canada and the U.S. Well, the U.S. and other countries, but obviously our main concern is what's happening here in this country. And uh, when the U.S. president put tariffs on Canada, Canada responded, as we know, with retaliatory tariffs. And uh, latest numbers indicate here that our country has taken in about $300 million from those tariffs on U.S. imports. But that's, uh, that's not the real story. The real story has to be the impact it's going to have on you, me, consumers. Ian Lee joins us from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University to give us, a, I think, a more accurate depiction of exactly how this is going to impact us. Ian, thank you for being with us today. Great to have you on the program again. My pleasure, Bill. I, I look at the headline here. This is why you need to read beyond the headlines. Uh, Canada takes in almost $300 million from retaliatory tariffs. Uh, that's money that's going to the government. As you've talked about in the past with us, yeah. the, if this is going to have an impact on us, that's what we should be concerned about as consumers. You're absolutely right. I've been critical at the very beginning, not because I'm some kind of a supporter of Donald Trump. I mean, what he's doing is is unjustified. His understanding of trade is wrong. I've said that over and over. But my criticism of the Canadian government for doing this is this is not going to change Donald Trump's behavior by one iota or one dollar. In fact, Donald Trump and the Americans are not paying these retaliatory tariffs. They are falling on you and me and Canadian consumers. That's why the Canadian Department of Finance is collecting the money, not the U.S. Treasury. The Canadian Ministry of Finance has collected almost $300 million, a third of a billion dollars in only two months. This is nothing other than a tax increase on Canadians because we're angry at Donald Trump. And I don't understand, I really don't, because I'm, I'm a simple person, you know. I'm from the real world, and I can count money. I'm a former banker. And if Donald Trump's not paying the $300 million, and Canadians are, how can we possibly con-, con ourselves or convince ourselves that we're sticking it to Donald Trump when we're not? We're sticking it to ourselves. We're, we, are, we are penalizing ourselves for Donald Trump's behavior. And that is just simply, I think, upside down and backwards. 
Well, let me give you some other numbers. I know you've seen this, but for the sake of our listening audience, uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection has uh, indicated right now that uh, the United States has assessed duties worth about $1.8 billion on steel imports and $535 million on aluminum imports from suppliers around the world. Uh, and so, uh, the numbers are obviously bigger because we're talking about U.S. But yes. the reality here is, that, as you say, those are the companies that are paying that. It's it's not the government. This is this is money that's going to accrue to the government, but it's not going to help any the companies. It's not going to help us. Exactly. And I will be just as critical of Donald Trump for imposing those tariffs as I was of Canada. Tariffs, and we've known this for 300 years in economic theory, Nobel Prizes have been awarded in trade theory, including to Paul Krugman, the famous Paul Krugman at Princeton and the New York Times columnist. And we know that when you liberalize trade and reduce the barriers, in plain English that means reduce the tariffs, everybody prospers on both sides. And that's why trade liberalization has been so popular in the last 30 years. So what we're doing now on both the American side and the Canadian side is exactly contrary to what we've known for a very long time from both theory and practice, that tariffs are a very bad idea. They discriminate against the consumer, and they reduce economic growth. And there's no way around that spinning that. You know, it's just a bad policy, whether it's American governments doing it or Canadian governments or German governments. It's just plain bad. And and the faster we can get out of this trap that we're in, the better it is for all of us. I've got to ask you something. That, uh, this is a comment from Bill Morneau, the finance minister, when he was asked about this $300 million that, uh, that has been collected so far. He says he wants to disperse that to some of the affected businesses that, that are going to be, uh, well, have already been impacted by this, obviously, and, and, yeah. and try to alleviate some of their pain. Uh, isn't that contrary to the trade agreements we already have? I mean, that's, that's bonusing, and, and that's, that's one of the things that's holding up the NAFTA deal, isn't it? Absolutely right. I mean, this is it's becoming more and more bizarre, the logic. So, you know, we're, going, we're charging tariffs that don't work because they fall on Canadians because we want to punch Donald Trump in the eye. And now we're saying we're going to give it back to firms uh, for not competing, uh, and, and, which is still going to come out of the pockets, by the way, of consumers. It doesn't mean that suddenly that money flows back into my pocket and your pocket. So the companies, they are going to enhance the profitability if they're profitable. And if they're losing money, well, then they're going to help them make less losses. But it doesn't help you and I. The ultimate economics has always been about the ultimate consumer. And this does not profit or benefit the ultimate consumer, which is all of us. One iota, not one iota. If you know, so you're subsidized, so you're subsidizing producers. What does that produce? What does that achieve? What does that accomplish in terms of raising the standard of living, raising economic growth? It doesn't. It does not. It sounds good politically. I mean, I don't dispute that they're doing that for political optics to show that they're, quote, doing something. But it isn't really going to have any effect at all. Companies exist not to collect subsidies. They exist to make products and services that you and I want to buy. That's, it's called market economy. And this is not, this is just piling one bad policy on top of another bad policy. In other words, we are doubling down on bad policies. Well, and there's a, there's another element that concerns me in this situation. Even if the government does move forward on this and say, okay, we're going to help out, uh, well, we just had a steel uh, meeting here on uh, the last Friday here in Hamilton with members of the steel industry and members of the federal and provincial governments talking about a strategy uh, you know, going forward. Yeah. But if they're going to offer money to people like that, uh, are they doing it on the premise that, well, if we help out these companies, they'll pass that down into it to the consumer? That's, that's a, the most elementary tr- of trickle-down economics, and we know that doesn't work. Exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't enhance the competitiveness of the firm. At the end of the day, firms, and I'm saying this, you know, just for your listeners, I want to remind them, I'm not just an ivory tower professor. I worked for 10 years in banking. I lent millions of dollars to real world entrepreneurs and real world companies. And companies only succeed in the long run if they are competitive. That is to say, they make a good product or a good service that you and I want to buy. And making them fat and lazy by getting, becoming dependent on government subsidies does not make our companies stronger. It makes them weaker. And this is not the way we should be going. I mean, if he was going to do something else, I don't know, retraining workers, I mean, I would support that if you wanted to spend the money on something. But just giving money to companies 
uh, is not going to make them more competitive and stronger in the marketplace. It's going to weaken them. And we have known this for a long time. There's just tons and tons of economic studies showing this. You know, as I said, if he wants to spend the money, he could give it as a rebate back to consumers through a tax cut. He could cut the, you know, I don't know, cut the GST or cut uh, personal income tax rates. Or he could put it into retraining. Uh, programs for people who have lost their jobs. That would be far more productive and useful than just simply giving it to the producers who are not producing because of the tariffs. We haven't really seen the full impact of these tariffs on the consumers no. yet, have we? That's $300 million in two months. That's not for the 12 months. We normally talk, when we talk government budgets, we talk on an annualized basis, understandably so. What's so shocking about this number? It's basically two months. So let's annualize the number. Well, <laughs> six, okay, two months out of 12, that's, there's six times to go. Six times 300 million is almost $2 billion is going to be sucked out, vacuumed out of the economy, out of the pockets of consumers, which is money they're not going to be spending on additional purchases of goods and services from private companies in the business world, which creates jobs. So this is a tax cut, a tax increase by any uh, way you cut, slice and dice it. And we know that tax increases are, are going to slow down growth, just as tax cuts in recessions increase growth. Tax increases slow down growth. So what we're doing is we're increasing interest rates for reasons I do understand, and now we're increasing taxes on top of that. So we're going to be really slowing down the economy. And I just don't think that's a prudent and wise um, a decision or direction in which to go. And, and you've got to wonder, if this looks like a bleak picture, just how much more bleak is it going to get? Because uh, even the steel companies, for instance, who are the, obviously the, the, the targets of what's going on now here on this side of the border anyway, are, are telling us that it hasn't really had the, uh, a, a big impact yet because, I mean, they're still filling orders that were given before yeah. this whole thing started. Exactly. But the longer this goes on, the worse this is going to get. Of course. I mean, if they want to do something bold and dramatic, Mr. Morneau and uh, Mr. Tr Prime Minister Trudeau, why don't they announce we're willing to meet Donald Trump anywhere, anytime, no conditions, and get rid of all tariffs on both sides. 100% tariffs gone. Now, there's a bold, dramatic stroke. Instead of this picking winners and losers and, you know, I'm going to give you as the Minister of Finance because I like to give out checks and get my picture taken, you know, on the local news uh, with the, the owner of the company who's getting the check, who's going to turn down a check for, you know, a million or five million or ten million. Nobody is. Cause nobody's that crazy. I wouldn't either, by the way. But we shouldn't be giving them out in the first place. They should be saying, let's come up with a much better strategy. Let's get back to the negotiating table and do something. Let's not get bogged down on dairy. Let's talk about something, a really bold stroke, the complete elimination of all tariffs on both sides. And, you know, it's not such a crazy idea. Milton Friedman, the late Milton Friedman at University of Chicago, very famous Nobel Prize winner, uh, frequently advocated that. He said countries should just unilaterally uh, eliminate all, their, all of their tariffs because he says it'll benefit their own consumers. To that point, though, Ian, and I think a lot of people here are assuming that uh, that if we can strike some sort of a NAFTA deal, that this is all going to go away. There, to my knowledge, uh, is no assurance at all that even if we strike a NAFTA deal, these tariffs are going to be lifted. The president's never said he was going to do that, and uh, I haven't heard anybody suggest that. I, I don't even know if that's on the table. That's exactly what scares me and really frightens me. It should be on the table. Now that we're at the, the 11th hour or whatever we're at, we should not just be, you know, I read the papers this morning yet again, and they said it's down to two issues, uh, a dispute mechanism and a dairy, uh, supply management. And I was screaming at the paper, what about all the tariffs? Why aren't they on the table? Why aren't we saying, Mr. Trump, take these tariffs away, and here's what we're going to offer you in exchange. We want all those tariffs off the table, all of them, not some of them, all of them newsprint, aluminum, steel, 100% tariffs gone, gone, gone. And they're not even talking this. I don't even know if they're thinking it, because they're certainly not tweeting it. They're certainly not mentioning these words about the elimination of all tariffs. They just seem to have resigned. Maybe they like the revenues coming in, because government politicians do like money, because, you know, it allows them to spend it and show it to the voters that they're doing something. And maybe that's it. Uh, but uh, it's not the way to go. They should be much, provide much more bold leadership and say, we want to put tariffs on the table, the elimination of tariffs on the table, and then we can talk about what we're willing to give up to you and what you can uh, 
uh, you know, whether you can go along with this deal or not. Haven't you seen this in the past, though? When, when there's an imposition of tariffs, that it becomes the new normal, yep. and, and we and and we and just kind of accept it. Well, it's you know, yeah, they're sticking it to us, but that's the way life is. That's what, as I said, that's what frightens me that it's going to become embedded very quickly, and then people will say it. I mean, the policymakers, when I say people, and the ministers of finance and prime ministers will just shrug and say, "Well, that's just the way it is," and that's not true. It isn't just the way it is. It isn't like the, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars and, and you know, summer fall going into fall and then into the winter. You know, it's not like that. These are decisions by people, real people. And just as these de- decision makers can make these decisions to impose these tariffs, they can just as easily, or I don't shouldn't say easily, but just as readily, uh, remove these tariffs. And yet I don't hear any uh, public... Uh, uh, you know, communication saying it's in our national interest to get all of these tariffs off the backs of our consumers as quickly as possible because they're going to drag down the economy. In your experience, you've been in this game a long time. Has anybody ever won with tariffs? Has anybody ever benefited? Any country at all? No. no. And I, I believe me, I've read tons of studies. And, you know, people can say, oh, well, you know, they're just people that support corporations. I have read studies by ministers of finance. <laughs> I, the OECD, which is, a, which is run and funded by the governments of the West, uh, have published studies on this. The IMF, these are completely objective, nonpartisan organizations. They're not political at all. They're staffed by economists. There's been elite uh, universities in the United States, the Harvards, the Stanfords, the Chicagos, have done study after study showing this, that tariffs drag down the economy, which is why for the last 30, 40 years, through the GATT, which then became the WTO, the World Trade Office, the goal has been for half a century or more the reduction, the steady reduction of tariffs, because we know they hurt the economy on both sides. They slow down the economy, they lead to less growth, and less jobs for everybody. And that's why we've been through successive rounds of, of, uh, of uh, negotiations with the uh, international, all the countries that are members of the WTO. The goal, as I said, has been to reduce, reduce, reduce the tariffs. And now we're going against everything we know. We're going against every study I've ever read that says that tariffs are bad. And this is not about throwing out government regulators and refusing to regulate, because I get this sort of canard, but people say, oh, you just don't want anything regulated. This has nothing to do with regulation. You can continue to regulate the safety of food and the safety of pharmaceuticals and, and so on without tariffs. You don't need tariffs to regulate, to do the, the regulatory function that governments do, whether it's regulating banks or regulating the financial markets or regulating the uh, production of automobiles in terms of their safety or regulating children's cribs. You can continue to do all of that without tariffs. All tariffs does is slow down the economy and drag it down. And, and it's paid for by our own people. That's what's so shameful about this. We're punishing ourselves to poke Donald Trump in the eye, and we're not hitting Donald Trump's eye. We're hitting our own eyes. Ian Lee of the Sprout School of Business. As always, Ian, thanks so much for this. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Bill. Take care. That's that's the paradox, isn't it? I mean, they, they talk about negotiating free trade deals, but they keep the tariffs in place. Ridiculous. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.